and welcome to the Rob Burgess Show. I'm, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 155th episode, our returning guest is Jason Stanley. You first heard Jason Stanley on episodes 122 and 145 of the podcast. Jason Stanley is the Jacob Yurosky Professor of Philosophy at Yale University. Before coming to Yale in 2013, he was Distinguished Professor in the Department of Philosophy at Rutgers University. Stanley is the author of Know How, Languages in Context, and Knowledge and Practical Interests, which won the 2007 American Philosophical Association Book Prize, and How Propaganda Works, which won the 2016 Prose Award for Philosophy from the Association of American Publishers. His first book, Knowledge and Practical Interests, won the American Philosophical Association Book Prize, awarded to one philosopher every year for 2005 and 2006. He is a frequent contributor to the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Boston Review, and the Chronicle of Higher Education, among other publications. Stanley lives in New Haven, Connecticut with his family. His book, How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them, was released September 4th, 2018. We started the conversation talking about the recently signed executive order by President Trump regarding anti-Semitism. The executive order says that uh, that uh, you uh, Title VI protections will be extended to uh, to Jewish people on the basis of their uh, ethnicity, roughly speaking. So it's been misreported as Netan as, as uh, saying Jews are a nation, it doesn't quite do that. But it, it, it rightly, in my view, is that Jewish people are not just a religion. Uh, it's, a, the, it's a protected identity. And that part of the order, the executive order, is, I think, kosher. <laughs> uh, uh, but what's, uh, what's less than kosher is, is the definition of anti-Semitism that uh, that it's it's uh, embracing uh, the definition of anti-semitism is very vague uh it's uh, uh uh it's the ihra definition of anti-semitism uh and uh and what it does is it says it gives us examples um uh it gives it gives us examples uh uh, uh Speech that can be considered critical of Israel. So, for example, it says denying. It says that it's anti-Semitic to deny the Jewish people their right to, uh, to self-determination, e.g., by claiming that the existence of a, of a state of Israel is a racist endeavor. So, so if you look at that, uh, and you consider perfectly legitimate political speech about the policies of the state of Israel. Uh, or you look at perfectly legitimate political critiques of the project of Zionism, it declares those critiques and debates uh, uh, civil rights violations. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that they're illegal, but what it means is that uh, it would be a on-campus Title VI violation, and so it would be against uh, campus regulations, uh, and federal funding would be threatened. Yeah, and I feel like it's one of those things where under any other administration, maybe you wouldn't look at it sideways, but you know what's, you know, it, it, there's nothing good that, that's going to come out of this with with these people in power. 
Well, I think even the, the Obama administration was considering a version of this legislation, and the part of the legislation that considers Jewish people uh, something like an ethnicity, although problematic in various ways, I think is legitimate. I think there are many non-religious Jewish people that are subject to anti-Semitism. But the problem here is the underlying definition of, of anti-Semitism, which is vague, and if it were followed in a non-vague way, might be okay. But as it stands, it looks like, you know, uh, Palestinians who argued, Palestinians or Palestinian Americans or their supporters who argued that there should be one state uh, there that was, uh, that was um, binational and was not officially a Jewish state. It looks like that position uh, could be on some construals of this definition of anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism. And that position is one that many Jewish intellectuals have held over the 20th century. Uh, many Jewish intellectuals have been critical of Zionism. Uh, Hannah Arendt was critical of Zionism. Um, Victor Klemperer, the great scholar of Nazism, uh, the uh, German Jew who survived uh, the World War II, has a chapter in uh, Language of the Third Reich, his great work on Nazi language, that, uh, com that argues that national socialist ideology is indebted to the Zionist way of thinking of the Jewish people. Um, so as a distinct group, as a nation unto itself. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of there, there's a lot of people there's a lot of indeed original Zionists uh, who would have critiqued the idea that Israel is first and foremost a Jewish state rather than a secular liberal state. Yeah, well, it seems like their desire to conflate the two is pretty strong, though. That, I mean, that seems to be the line that they're taking. There's no daylight in their mind between criticism of Israel. And I mean, Jared Kushner came out and said that in an op-ed in the New York Times just recently. He said, basically, anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, like straight up. So, which, you know, makes a lot of uh, Jewish intellectuals in the 20th century and debates about Zionism. It makes the Arendt Gershom Sholem debate uh, a debate between an anti-Semite and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and a non-anti, and you know, and but and and we J Jewish people have always disagreed with each other. Mm -hmm. And I'm a Zionist of sorts. Uh, I'm a you know Zionist socialist, or but I I believe there should be there should be no state based on religious belief, or no state that's connected by its nature to a religion. I'm a liberal. Uh, that that position uh, could be anti-Semitism is 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 perplexing to me. After all, Nazi propaganda declares that liberalism is Jewish. <laughs> mm. so, uh, you know, it was the liberals, the the leftists, the liberals, the universalists, the globalists who were who were the Jews, and now you know supposedly uh, people who are. Uh, you know, it's anti-Semitic not to be a nationalist of a certain variety. So yeah. it's, it's very complex to explain to Americans unfamiliar with this history. It's a very political move to if the EO is used, if the executive order is used in the way that one fears, um, to, because it will quash legitimate political debate uh, uh, and it will quash... Uh, you know, talk about self-determination. I mean, if if you go for people having 
you know, if you go for the idea that uh, a group of people should be able to self-determine, then uh, then presumably Palestinians should be able to do that as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, it's just it's frustrating to see from the outside uh, these uh you know, Orthodox or conservative Jews, I guess, that do support Trump because, like you said, there is a history here, and you're taught. I I would assume from a very young age about look out for this in the future because it's been happening for a long time, and uh, to not see the parallels, at least you know, somewhat, is frustrating to to me because, like in his speech, he, uh, he called them bad people. I think some people laughed maybe because they didn't know what else to do, but. Um, <laughs> He, you know, he, he he used stereotypes, but he was like using it in the, hey, money, right? <laughs> like, yeah, I, I mean, I think he thinks that he's praising his audience. Yeah, right. He <laughs> thought he was giving a compliment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? So, so, uh, so that's, that's just Trump. Um, so I don't think Trump is, uh, you know, the things he, uh, anti-Semitism is a very complicated thing. He uses many anti-Semitic stereotypes. He uses some of the worst anti-Semitic stereotypes, um, uh, Jews as money-grubbing, you know, uh, greedy people. Yeah. But uh, but for some reason, he does not regard that as a negative. So uh, the um, yeah. The, uh, but he he also is using Israel to support his general nationalist philosophy. I mean, there's different varieties of Zionism, and not all varieties of Zionism. Uh, in fact, most varieties of Zionism are not ethno-nationalist, but uh, they're, they're, you know, Trump is supporting a certain kind of, uh, uh, a certain view of Israel uh, and uh, among the Israeli right that it is a certain kind of ultra-nationalist project, and that's the kind of ultra-nationalism that Trump sees himself as embodying. And so... Like, for instance, uh, white supremacist um, websites like CrossCurrents, which praise Yoram Hazoni's work, uh, who Yoram and Yoram Hazoni is an Israeli scholar who who try who argues for nationalism, and you know uh, he set up the National Conservatives uh, con- na- uh, National Conservatives Conference here to try to sort of reverse engineer a philosophy for Trumpism. Um, so you have the Israeli right and the American right linking up under a certain version of extreme nationalism. Um, and so that's going on as well. Uh, so you have and you have Christian evangelicals here uh, who who want to see the United States as a Christian nation. And so if Israel's a Jewish nation, why can't the United States be a Christian nation? Yeah, well, it it almost reminds me of uh, the. It, there's a little bit of overlap, I feel like, in like far, you know, white supremacist ideology and super black nationalist in a certain way because it's Absolutely. like you had this crossover where they both kind of want to be in their separate places and they're both kind of fine with that. And uh, that's you know they have very different goals and, and ways of getting about it. I don't mean to compare them in any other way, really, but I just mean that they both have kind of the same vision, you know, just a separate place. Louis Farrakhan, Louis Farrakhan is a far right wing ultranationalist. Right. He's anti-feminist. He's homophobic. He's anti-Semitic. Uh, he is all the things that he is far right. There's plenty of far right nationalism, black nationalism, and there's far-right uh, Israeli nationalism, of course. 
Yeah, that's uh, right. So, uh, so all these nationalist movements will link up, and there will be, I predict, black support among black nationalists for Trump. Um, you know, uh, just as there is, uh, you know, uh, right. I mean, there, there's these different nationalist movements want different nations to succeed, but they yeah, right. <laughs> each other on the nationalism. It's, yeah. So, uh, so that's what's happening in the world. And that's why a certain vision of Israel, not the vision that I favor, uh, is gaining currents in this alliance, um, which is the ultranationalist vision of, of Israel, the, the Jewish nationalist vision of Israel, which accords with the Christian nationalist vision, vision of the United States. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just it's just amazing to see uh, uh, this going on over the world, really. I mean, uh, we can talk a little bit about what's happening in India. Right. Well, uh, so wait, what's happening in India? It's another thing I wanted to talk to you about. So that there you have maybe the most frightening situation in the world, certainly one of them up there with China. And but what's happening in India is the uh, is Modi, who's a Hindu nationalist, has in the 2019 elections, his party, BJP, has consolidated complete power in the country. And you have a majority of uh, the city, the residents of India, the voting residents of India, uh, being uh, supporting a vicious kind of Hindu nationalism uh, w- w- that has as its goal the demonization and ultimate second-class citizenship uh, push for Muslim uh, residents of India. So, uh, so you have. Uh, the BJP is the political wing of RSS, which was a, a Hindu fascist party directly influenced by National Socialism and Mussolini. Uh, and BJP were these were Hindu nationalists in the 1990s, uh, considered very extreme. Uh, the movement really started when um, when a uh, a mosque was burned on December 6, 1992. By these Hindu, by Hindu nationalists, and a BJP organized uh, uh, demonstration that turned violent, and uh, and that because they claimed that this was a sacred Hindu place uh, where the mosque was located, and uh, and the Hindu nationalists have since 1992 just you know <laughs> as really we've seen in the United States more rapidly consolidated power and support. To the point where by 2019 they're gathering votes even from the lower class uh, Hindus who who should not be uh, who should not be supporting an ideology that is committed to class the class caste system in the first place. So mm-hmm. so most worrisomely and alarmingly is this move to denationalize uh, Muslims. So uh, so. You always have to watch out for statelessness because before you're going to brutalize a population, you render them stateless because if they're stateless, as Arendt warned us long ago, you can do anything to them because you don't have responsibility for them. So that's, so that's what's happening, and there's two mechanisms they're using. They, they're having, for the first time, a national registry of citizens that is dividing, that is tasked with counting the true citizens of India. And to, uh, to get on that, to, to be classified as a citizen, you need to have, uh, 
proof of long-term residency and certain paper documentation is required. And many, many Indian residents lack any such documentation. So millions and millions and millions of Indian residents will not qualify as citizens. So simultaneously, while they're doing this, they passed a bill called the Citizenship Amendment Bill, CAB. CAB set provides a fast track to citizenship for all non-Muslim illegal immigrants. So if you put these two things together, what you see is that Hindus without papers will be able to claim that they're non-Muslim immigrants and get a fast track to citizenship. Muslims without papers uh, will not have any fast track to citizenship, will be detained in the huge detention camps India is now building, and ultimately deported. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's pretty dark, and it's got a history, of course, with uh, fascists in the, in the past. Uh, this is how you, like you said, this is how you get people to be victims, because they don't have a state. They don't have any organization that, I mean, look at the Kurds, look at, uh, you know. The Rohingya in Myanmar are the example that India is really looking at. It's Mm -hmm. a neighboring state. Um, The Rohingya were always stateless. They lived for a long time in Rankine province, but they were always stateless. Uh, I mean, officially stateless. They didn't have an official status. And uh, Burma and then Myanmar uh, kept them that way. Uh, and then one day in, 27, in 2012, uh, they were declared all Bangladeshi refugee, you know, refu- illegal immigrants and uh, put in, uh, basically imprisoned in, in their villages. And then in 2017, there was massive ethnic cleansing, if not genocide, uh, justified on the basis that they aren't really residents. And this is the model India, I fear, is looking at. Right. And but the I mean, people are saying this is like the end of Gandhi's version of India because it's, you know, it was that was his revolution was taking that, you know, system away of, you know, uh, you know, classification like that. So it's. It's very yeah. upsetting to see it go the other direction because you think it's like the long arm, arm of justice or whatever, but it's really like, well, sometimes it bends the other way too. <laughs> you know? It's exactly. just been one way. So. We Americans know that. We had Reconstruction here, yeah. 10 years where black Americans could vote. And, uh, you know, I mean, I grew up hearing about, oh, will this be the first black congressman from the South since Reconstruction? You know, mm-hmm. like... You know, so it's baked into the way we think as Americans that there was this period of time, Reconstruction, uh, where we know that there were black congressmen and even black senators. But uh, but I think there was a black senator. I'll have to look that up. Uh, so uh, and uh, uh, but uh, but we, so we we have those phrases like first congressman, um, uh, first congressman. Uh, for, for since Reconstruction, we know that. So we know things can go backwards here. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not a mystery to us. And in India, unfortunately, what we're seeing is is we're we're seeing patterns from the past that are deeply concerning. Uh, for instance, we're seeing the institutions uh, become nationalized uh, in a 
in in a transformation that that in the hist in German history we call Gleichschaltung, where the institutions become became Nazified. Here we're seeing the institutions of a great secular liberal country, India, uh, becoming Hindu nationalist institutions. It looks like that's happening with the Supreme Court. And of course, we have to worry with something parallel here as our courts become stacked with Trump loyalists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's once again the evangelical right, uh, seeing, again, the super religious people taking Trump, you know, what did they say? Not seriously, but literally or literally not seriously. I don't remember which it was, but you know what I mean? It's like seriously, not literally. And it turned uh, out we're supposed to take we should have taken him seriously and literally. Yeah, exactly. Good, good, good point. Um, but yeah, anyway, they they see him as some sort of, oh, he's a flawed character. But hey, you know, he's like in people in the Bible. There was a Bible story where King whatever David. was David. Right. Exactly. was the un you know. Yeah. So. Uh, no, uh, it's oh, and this is apropos your point about my fellow Jewish Americans who are much more religious than me, uh, who are also who are traditional traditional Orthodox or Hasidim. Um, uh, many of these communities support Trump for the same reason that evangelicals do, because mm-hmm. he's catering to a certain fundamentalist uh, uh, view of things. Uh, and catering to uh, to projects that their fundamentalism links them to, uh, mm-hmm. such as the settler movement in Israel or in the United States, uh, you know, uh, various uh, you know Christian nationalism essentially, mm-hmm. and certain positions on on uh, on abortion, certain positions on uh, on uh, LGBTQ rights, uh, etc. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, you know, speaking of other concerning situations in the world, uh, the UK election didn't go so great for anyone except for the Tories. And it went great for Vladimir Putin because he really doesn't like the United Kingdom. And this is probably it for that. And, you know, Scotland's probably going to leave for sure since they voted for it like three times in a row. Um, so that's what he wants. He wants to break up the things and get everyone back to their little fiefdoms and, you know, <laughs> no more NATO and no more, you know, all the European Union, whatever, like like United Kingdom, any anything to break up, anything to encourage the nationalism, you know, anything to make it the yeah. little states warring against each other, vying for, you know, whatever. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's the uh, international structures are... Uh, threatening because they're threatening to oil companies uh, because you could have regulatory agreements uh, that seek, like the Paris Climate Exchange uh, Accord, that seek to protect the earth. Um, but if everyone is in their nationalist enclave, then uh, international regulatory environmental agreements uh, are, are not going to be uh, efficacious. Uh, there's going to be no block on the kind on the way that Russia makes its money, which is via oil. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, but uh, how, how do you know, because it seems frustrating from over here because you see in 2016, um, I, you're very good at identifying the problem, and, and I don't mean to put you on the spot about finding solutions, but <laughs> I'd like to try to find some solutions. So I'm, I'm a little bit, uh, I don't know, I don't know what to do next. You know, I see this as a problem. Uh, and, you know, in 2016, Hillary Clinton ran. She was a you know, centrist and she won, but she lost, whatever. 
Uh, and then, you know, Jeremy Corbyn was a radical and he was left wing and, and he lost even worse. So it's like, okay, well, what, what do you, which one works? Like, what, what do you do? I, I'll go with either, whatever. <laughs> I mean, I, uh, I think we're all guessing to some, some extent. We can't, uh, I think Corbyn was dislikable. Um, and Hillary Clinton was not very likable. I mean, she did not run a campaign. I think Hillary Clinton is likable, but her campaign was not likable. She did, did not seem, no. uh, it was not a, it did not seem like it was a well-run campaign. She was, she, uh, I think Corbyn ran a terrible campaign. Uh, there was a lot of people who just viscerally disliked him. Uh, it's hard for me to know, not having been in, in the UK, it's hard for me to assess what happened with anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, but it's it's hard for me not to think that there there wasn't a kind of I mean Cor Corbin uh, some people get obsessed with Israel uh, excessively over and above uh, obsession with other human rights situations in the world I think that's a problematic sign and maybe that was present mm -hmm. in the UK Labour Party um, uh, there's been enough Jewish people. Who have said that anti-Semitism was was a problem for me to think it was, but uh, I don't see how that possibly could be used against Bernie Sanders. Uh, you know, or they're going to try Ted Cruz, who who uh, you know associates with anti-Semites all the time. I mean, he, he's you know pictures of him with John Hagee, and uh, I mean certainly he's he's he's. Uh, you know, right-wing anti-Semites are not unfamiliar to him. I'm not suggesting he's an anti-Semite, but but uh, Ted Cruz tweeted today uh, linking Corbyn and Sanders uh, because of Sanders' support from uh, people like Ilhan Omar or Linda Saussure. So you're going to see that that used as a strategy against the Democratic Party. Um, I suspect. Uh, whoever they run, <laughs> um, that they're insufficiently pro-Israel, uh, something mm -hmm. like that, and then that will be represented as anti-Semitism. Um, so, uh, so there's going to be a, there's, there's going to be propaganda campaigns. I think whatever happened in the UK, there was, I'm sure, legitimate charges of anti-Semitism against the Labour Party, but it was also much exaggerated. Uh, so, uh, you know, to the point where, you know, I went to London a few weeks ago and thought that I was going to be in danger for something, <laughs> um, you know, or, or being targeted on the streets. But, you know, uh, that's not, I, I think Britain, is, the UK is still a safe place to be Jewish. So, you know, there, there, there seems to be... <laughs> well, put, put, put that on a billboard. That's a vote of confidence right there. Yeah. <laughs> I think well, so. I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't, as an American, judge exactly what was happening. Uh, yeah, that's any, good point. I mean, my, my, my Jewish friends in the UK tended to be labor supporters or certainly not going to vote. But there was a lot of antipathy towards Corbyn himself. I don't mm -hmm. see... I mean, Bernie Sanders is one of the most liked politicians in the United States. Uh, so... You know, he has strong favorability even among people who don't support him. So it's not really clear to me um, that there is really a moral to be taken other than make sure the person you elect, you know, can run a campaign that's better than the one Clinton ran in 2016 yeah. and much better than the one Corbyn ran. Yeah. <laughs> it's just kind of amazing that 
what would be the first Jewish presidential candidate of a major major party gets accused of anti-Semitism. What are the odds? <laughs> like, well, you know, like, what, well, what, well, it's a very dark time in Jewish yeah. American history, I think, right now. It's a dark time because what's happening is you're seeing a war between Jewish people. The same, uh, uh, the same mechanisms that were used to attack those who supported BDS, and I do not support BDS, but uh, but I recognize it as a legitimate political tactic that people can argue for. Uh, so the same tactics that were used to attack them are now being aimed at progressive Jews. So there's a lot of progressive Jews out there who are being accused of anti-Semitism. And with some of the same tropes that you found, frankly, in documents like the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, where, where left-wing Jews are being accused of hiding anti-Semitism, hiding illiberal aims behind the mask of social justice. So, you know, it's a really bad thing when, so it's this, there's always been this stress fracture between communities of Jews dating back thousands of years. Um, So-called Hellenistic Jews were the ones who always favored, so were supposed to have fa favored uh, assimilating you know, favored the ones who would uh, the who would subjugate Jews. You know, the the empire, as it were. And uh, there's always been this tension between uh, uh, one group of Jews, one one group of us who who said we shouldn't assimilate, and another group of us who said we should assimilate. And what you're seeing is right now you're seeing uh, a finely honed apparatus aimed at progressive Jews like myself uh, who are raising our kids in Hebrew school and everything and we're being represented as anti-Semitic because, uh, because we say, uh, you know, Ilana Omar is great <laughs> and deny that she's an anti-Semite. Um, but you don't consider BDS to be a inherently anti-Semitic enterprise? I do not consider BDS to okay. be anti-Semitic enterprise. Right. God's sakes, Judith Butler is uh, is uh, pro BDS. I mean, she teaches. She's a Jewish woman who teaches. Uh, and again, I'm not pro BDS, but it's a not. I, I'm sure there are anti-Semites who are pro BDS. <laughs> um, so uh, I'm sure that's the case. Uh, but there are also people who are deeply concerned about Israel and uh, its soul and heart who are who think that pressure should be brought to stop uh, to stop uh, illegal settlements, to stop practices that's, that are not in the best interests of Israel's future. And I disagree that BDS is a good tactic to use for that. I don't think that uh, academic boycotts uh, are, are the way to go. Um, but, you know, there's certain, you know, uh, it's also a very broad spectrum. I mean, what about boycotting just the companies that that help that sell equipment to movements that to to build illegal settlements? I mean, that seems to be much less problematic than uh than an acad than academic boycotts or general boycotts. Uh so, you know, there's a lot of different things that could be protested in a nonviolent civil way. And BDS and companies all of the uh, uh, encompasses a lot of those, 
or uh, and uh, some of which are unquestioningly legitimate. Yeah. So it's a much more so it's more like it's more like scare words. Um, and there are many Jewish people, many uh, I mean the uh, the uh, many prominent Jewish people uh, who are supporters of BDS uh, in academia and elsewhere. Uh, you know, it's uh, to declare them all anti-Semitic seems seems anti-Semitism is targeting Jews. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so if it turns out that the most prominent American anti-Semites are Jews, then, uh, you know, that's weird. Yeah, very, very strange. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's it's uh, just it's just frustrating. It's it's people setting the terms of the debate. And it's almost like there's projection because, like, these people wink and nod. The, I'm talking about the Trump people. They wink and nod at anti-Semites, uh, and then they act like they're against anti-Semitism. It's like but they're, they're playing both sides of the fence here, you know, in, in yeah. a lot of ways. And it's, and, it's very and, and, upsetting to see. And, and frankly, it's not good for, the Jewish, for, for Jewish Americans to have, our, to have our identity politicized in this way. It's never been good historically. It wasn't good in France in the late 19th century when you had Dreyfus parties, parties whose entire mission centered around uh, the charge charges of anti-Semitism, pro-Dreyfus and anti-Dreyfus parties. Uh, it's never been good for Jewish people in a country when their identity is politicized in this way. And it makes me worried about my fellow Jewish Americans. Yeah, and <laughs> we're getting we're getting real confusion around this phrase against the state of Israel. There's a lot of propaganda surrounding it, and that needs to be unpacked. Now, what is so, so people try to 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 mess around with that. They'll say they want to eradicate the state of Israel. And my response is, well, if anyone wants to kill Jewish people, that's anti-Semitic and they should be stopped. And, you know, that would be terrible. to kill. But sometimes what they mean is people by eradicating the state of Israel is they mean something like there can be no binational state, a one state solution where Palestinians and uh, non, you know, Palestinian, there are Palestinian Israeli citizens and, and Jewish and non-Palestinian Jewish citizens. I mean, there are now, but a one state solution that incorporates everyone would be eradicating the state of Israel or, or, I mean, they certainly mean that, uh, or a, or a solution that says as many original Zionists wanted that Israel is not a Jewish state but a secular liberal state. Uh, that was the vision of many original Zionists, uh, and that vision uh, is sometimes described as eradicating the Jewish state, <laughs> you know, or being against Israel. And mm. that's where that's where there's a lot of linguistic confusion. They try to. Uh, they, Netanyahu is very skilled at that. They try to represent something that is against a certain ultra, certain nationalist version of Israel, uh, as as some kind of proto genocide of the of Jewish people in Israel, and that's what you have to be to attend to. A lot of Americans who don't understand the situation understand by eradicating the, the state of Israel, or well, eradicating that, or understand by you know being against the state of Israel. Uh, some something that would involve violence or something that would be illiberal, whereas actually what some people mean is is just you know uh, uh, making it into a secular liberal democracy. 
Mm-hmm. But it's like, I mean, in a certain way, I understand why people are, are wary of people criticizing Israel because it's like, after you've gone this long without having a home, you know, it's like finally you got something and, you know, maybe there's problems. Okay. But like, this is the first time ever that we've gotten a, a place of our own really like in, in recent memory. And, you know, it's, it's a big deal and they are on, on attack from all sides in certain ways militarily. But at the same time, it's like, you should be able to question any government. It, it should be, be it's, yeah. it's, it's, I'm an American and you should be able to question any government. Yeah, absolutely. That, there are two different there are different groups that have legitimate claims on the same pieces of land and right. that's going to be complicated. <laughs> and well, especially and, if you say there only only one of them can win, like only right, one exactly. can be here at the end and it's like, well, okay. Exactly. <laughs> what do you do with the other ones? <laughs> exactly. exactly. It, that's where yeah. that's where that's where it gets frightening. And so, and it's not good for the security of Israel to uh to to go down a certain route that uh, represents the situation as unsolvable and Palestinians as somehow beyond the pale. I mean, if I can walk into Berlin where my family's property was stolen and their glorious houses and apartments in, in, the, in Charlottenburg taken away, if I can walk to Berlin, into Berlin and look at my great-grandfather's apartment and be happy and enjoy my time in Germany, then Palestinians whose houses and property were stolen from them, uh, if they were given full rights and and uh, could could also feel positively. Uh, it's not like Palestinians are different than other people. And so that's what I'm concerned yeah. with situation is that Palestinians are represented uh, are represented in this deeply problematic and uh, really, you know, from the perspective of someone worried about violence against them, uh, that's already, of course, happening and has been happening, uh, a deeply problematic way. Um, so, right. I mean, all of this, but our, but that, that's the complex po politics over there. Uh, as far as Americans are concerned, Americans should be allowed to discuss the politics of, of any nation and take any stand. Um, I'm in agreement that people who focus obsessively on Israel and don't pay attention to what's happening in India um, are probably, uh, are, you know, m might be accused of anti-Semitism legitimately. But, uh, but you, you know, it's obviously there's serious problems with the politics and policies of the state of Israel. And if you can't talk about that, you know, <laughs> that's a problem. Yeah, and it's and it's super upsetting to see it come from people that are always harping on about free speech and why isn't there free speech on campus anymore people like and it's like well okay now, is there free speech on campus for everyone really about this too? <laughs> like, on campus around if if you're if you're pushing for Palestinian rights and Palestinian uh you know pushing back against the human rights disaster really facing Palestinians um, so it's it's problematic, and you know I would even delicately choose my words uh, because uh, you know it's it's a very problematic speech situation, uh, and now yeah. it's being weaponized uh, this issue where people who do speak about it, like Ilan Omar and Linda Sosur, who is for God's sake Palestinian American, 
and so should have every right to speak about mm-hmm. uh, her perspective. As a Jewish American, I don't begrudge anyone speaking about their perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she has every right to talk about how she sees things. Uh, so they get then attacked just for you know, raising positions, which, while I might not agree with them, you know, are part of, you know, are, are and, and, and someone who's Palestinian-American should not be accused of anti-Semitism. Whatever they say, you know, uh, I have relatives who are being mistreated. You know? Well, I mean, it was a tactic that was used uh, in other cases, too. I mean, when there was apartheid in South Africa, I mean, there was that whole song that uh, little Stevie did, uh, you're going to play Sun City, you know, like he, you know, they put it on the line there. They said, we're not going to support this with our money. Uh, and I, I don't know. I mean, isn't that the free market speaking? Aren't you supposed to just talk with your wallet in that uh, capitalism yeah, or whatever? That's why, that, that's why BDS, I mean, again, what is BDS? I mean, there are companies that sell their equipment uh, or supply equipment to uh, to destroy Palestinian villages to make way for illegal settlements. It should be perfectly reasonable to ask universities to divest from those companies for the same reason that we saw around South Africa. But then you get to more extreme versions of BDS where you're talking about not participating in academic events or academic exchanges, um, boycotting institutions that are not... Uh, that are not involved in uh, in in uh, in thing in in uh, Palestinian oppression, and there I you know I disagree. I don't think that's a way uh, that's an effective or legitimate strategy. Um, but to criminalize it and to criminalize to criminalize support for it, that goes beyond my understanding of what it is to be American. I mean, I'm an American. Mm-hmm. You know, at the core of what's great about our country is uh, freedom. <laughs> you know, the freedom to uh, to express yourself being paramount uh, uh, among them, among these freedoms. So when now you can say, okay, these contracts that you signed or Title VI violations on campus, these these don't make the acts illegal. They make them punishable, or you're free not to sign the contract. But uh, you know. We're talking about we're not the kind of speech we're talking about that is that you know if I were Palestinian American and I I would be criticizing I would be criticizing Israel uh, you know I might be criticizing is you know some of Israel's actions uh, th- this is not or and considering various tactics to bring to bear uh, to support my own relatives. Uh, you know, th- this is political speech, and the core of the First Amendment protects political speech. So the idea that in the United States, I can understand why, you know, non certain kinds of non political speech might be, might be, um, you know, I mean libel. We don't allow libel, but uh, this is political speech to decide, you know, to adjudicate strategies for. Uh, pressuring other nations, it's, it, that's political speech. And the idea that that would be restricted uh, by universities or by employers, well, that seems just anti-freedom to me. 
Yeah, well, I'm, that's another reason I wanted to talk to you is I, I'm kind of interested in to see how you're going to go forward because I think that the danger I see is not that you're going to say the wrong thing necessarily. It's that you're going to say something you and you should say something and you won't because you'll stop yourself. You'll you'll self-censor yourself because you don't want to be accused of being in the in the wrong here. And now the rules have you know, changed a little bit or seem to have. Uh, it's 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 that that's what that's what upsets me is like oh well now we can't hear that perspective because people are are going to be not wanting to say it legitimately because you know uh, there's a there's a chilling chilling effect right as as Timothy Snyder says in On Tyranny uh, I think the first rule is don't obey in advance <laughs> yeah that's a great yeah. book I really like so, that one yeah so uh, so there's uh, I mean. My views on Israel are, you know, not fairly standard Labor Party Israeli views in Israel. I mean, you know, I, I think Israel should be a liberal, secular liberal democracy. There should be some kind of two-state solution that's legitimately uh, uh, beneficial and safe for both parties. When when you have someone like me being attacked, uh, you know, for for not being sufficiently pro-Israel, uh, I don't know what's meant there by pro-Israel, uh, and 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 more than that, since my politics is focused in the United States, uh, the United States, I, I I don't think that my identity should be politicized. It's it's uh, it's very pro. You know, whenever you have a group whose identity is politicized like this, um, you know, it and becomes like part and parcel of of the politics. America was always distinct and that Jews had a presence, we, we had a presence here, uh, and we didn't enter the politics uh, in, the, in this way. So, so, yeah, but, you know, right, I mean, one of the problems here is that this synergy between nationalisms, this is what we're facing worldwide. We're fa facing the synergy between nationalisms, so Christian nationalists who are no friend of American Jews, because they think America is a Christian nation, they suddenly partner up with right wingers in Israel who say that uh, who claim that uh, that you know Israel has to be a uh, you know that non Jews should be second class citizens in Israel, which so you know this is uh, and and they partner up with Hindus Hindu Hindu ultranationalists who say Muslims should be second class citizens in uh, in India. They're even calling in. Some of the Hindutva, the Hindu nationalists, even call for India to be a Hindu Zion. So, and of course, you know, Christian nationalists in America think of America as a kind of Christian Zion. So, so this ultranationalism that that is more and more, as you pointed out earlier in the conversation, starting to have fundamentalism at its base, which is something a little bit missing from the fascism narrative. Uh, uh, I, I I tend to to tell uh, that I think is the problem is a serious problem going forward in our world, especially as the problems in our world become ever more complex and ever more international. To look inward and to look towards uh, a fundamentalist religious base that wants us to return to traditions that you know, are not going to allow us to solve these global problems, uh, that's just going to augur <laughs> uh, disaster in the future. Mm. This is a little bit off topic, but I've known a couple people that 
uh, were Jewish and then actually moved uh, back to Israel and like literally like joined the army. And now they're they're never going to not be super pro-Israel now because it's like <laughs> you've you've moved to a place and you join the, the the and it's compulsory if you're a certain age, right? I mean, if you have to join the military if you're of a certain age group in Israel, right? Yeah, I mean, that's that's why, you know, I mean, hopefully that keeps the IDF um, uh, less, um, you know, I mean, to have a civilian army can be important uh, for the morality right. of the army. But, but yeah, that's why, uh, uh, that's why uh, I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. What you what what you say is right, but you know we're spending a lot of time talking about the politics of another nation because it's entered mm-hmm. our American politics. I mean, there's a there's a crisis in Israel. They have a far right government. They have a far right government that is corrupt. Netanyahu's government Netanyahu has been accused of corruption and a number of different acts, and uh, and their far right government is linked to our far right government, which is linked to far right governments around the world. And of course, what you see in Israel is that is that they're taking uh, anti-Semitic, fascist, quasi-fascist leaders like Viktor Orban uh, and venerating them and treating them with great reverence. And uh, you know, these are people who have run anti-Semitic political campaigns. So, uh, so it's this ultranationalism that's running through the world, uh, linked to fundamentalism, mm-hmm. with the backing of. Uh, of oil companies and oligarchs who seek who see international frameworks as a threat. Yeah, but uh, what are you doing for the holidays? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm probably grading papers. <laughs> <laughs> I should have known. <laughs> uh, I, I, will, I, will, yeah. I will certainly be grading papers, like I do every holidays. That's that's right. Oh we'll, yeah. Hanukkah. We're gonna have, we're gonna have uh, uh, we'll have a uh, Hanukkah with the kids, which is nice. Oh, nice. They'll be home from school this year, and and uh, so I'll have to get. And I will be. My wife is a cardiologist. So oh wow! Working through the holidays, so okay. I will be home alone with the kids, um, and so I want to get them presents that will entertain us all. <laughs> and uh, uh, so maybe uh, uh, I don't know board games. I don't know. I still have to figure that out, and Hanukkah is imp- impending. But uh, but maybe we'll go to New York City. Um, uh, but you know, being married to a cardiologist is restrictive in a number of ways. What are you doing for the holidays? Yeah. Oh, as little as possible. My wife and I just do. Uh, we we don't go anywhere. We've already gone to certain people's houses. We'll go to other people's houses later. Ah. But uh, yeah. you know, holidays are usually just reserved for locking the doors <laughs> to our house. <laughs> but um, yeah. So uh, any any music you want to recommend? You've been listening to lately. Uh, no, I haven't been listening to any music. All Nothing? <laughs> I, no, I don't listen to music. Wow, really? Is it, do you not read and listen to music at all? Never. Or you, just, you, you need silence. You probably get more reading done than me. That's true. That, that would probably help me concentrate. <laughs> uh, I, I, um, yeah, I mean, it's, I used to listen to a lot of punk rock and, uh, and hip-hop, but I, I haven't been listening to music. I've just been essentially... Uh, I, I spend a lot of time with little my my children and my family, and uh, and otherwise I I've been working 
which is something when you're with a cardiologist, you you can see yeah. that <laughs> you learn a lot about work. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you're always on call, right? Pretty much. I mean, any time can be go time. I assume. Um, and we have a rich circle of friends here, uh, including Tim Snyder, for instance. And oh uh, man, tell him that. to come on the podcast. I would love <laughs> to have him on the podcast. He's great. It's on tyranny. It was fantastic. I'm reading uh, uh, Road to Unfreedom right now. Uh, yeah. Oh my gosh! Yeah, um, amazing. Yeah, how fascism works uh, was deeply influenced by conversations with him and his partner, his wife Marcy Shore, who uh, who helped mm-hmm. me with the material on the protocols of the elders of Zion. She's uh, she. I remember one time I ran into Marcy Shore, of, like in 2016, on campus, and she said, "Are you teaching the protocols this semester?" I said, "I am," and she said, "So am I. <laughs> I should teach it." <laughs> so. Uh, so yeah, we have we have are very close. We're blessed to have a incredible community um, of, uh, of moral activists and friends here um, who are involved in this struggle to do something about the crisis um, caused by the attack on immigrants. And uh, so I assume we'll be taking our kids to uh, various protests <laughs> in the next few weeks, as we usually so- do. Yeah, absolutely. Tomorrow, well, the impeachment yeah. protest to take them to. That's yeah. right. That's right. That is tomorrow. Yeah, um, <laughs> those are happening all over for sure. Um, but yeah, well, I mean, we we talk about scary stuff uh, whenever we talk, but I, I feel like it's good because you have to be able to identify uh, things. You can't you can't effectively face something unless you you understand it and can. If it's mentionable, it's manageable. You know, it's like you, you can say it out loud. Uh, that's what I liked about, you know, not uh, your, your book's great. Don't get me wrong, <laughs> but I don't want to mean to come back to Timothy Snyder again. But in in that book uh, uh, on tyranny, that's it felt like okay, like yes, it's 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 really serious. But you, you're not powerless. You have things you can do in your life. No, that's we, why I, one of my favorite parts of that book were where he said you got to keep reading. Here's some things you could read. Don't stop. Don't let them take you know that thing from you. And it's like yeah, there's no reason you should stop living your life. You know. Well, well, Tim. Snyder urges in that book action, material action, yeah, exactly. and I think you see you see the protesters in Hong Kong quoting his book uh, all over where you see people taking the streets. Uh, they quote that book. That book is about uh, that book is about uh, what to do. Uh, my work is so much analysis yeah. as his yeah. freedom. So how yeah. fascism works is not about what to do. It's about uh, it's about what we face, uh, yeah. and uh, and also Tim Snyder's on tyranny. Though, I mean, it's a it's I mean, it's a great work, but it has a little bit of a problem in the United States in the context of the United States. So one of my my the favorite my favorite questions I ever asked was when he was giving a talk and he was talking about the advice and take take care of the face of the world. He says if if you see a swastika, take it down. Mm. And I raised my hand and I said, what if you walk by a Confederate monument? Mm. In other words, he's writing from a European perspective that assumes that the, that, that uh, icons of hatred and racial exploitation are not official symbols. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and, you know, those monuments were put up like uh, 75 years after the Civil War was over anyway. It was just to reinforce 
Jim Crow and you know it was paid for by this one league of the south that did like 700 of them in like a 15 year period at the turn of the century right you know? that's right. that's right but but it's obviously part of it's endorsed it's endorsed by the state it's for sure endorsed by the state and yeah. so it's much that's different than dealing with uh, a situation in Europe where neo nazis uh skinheads have put placed swastikas on a wall uh the United States itself has this lengthy, problematic history, mm-hmm. and it's embedded into our institutions. And what we've learned from the past few years, I mean, many of us didn't need to learn it, but what, what more of us have learned over the past few years is that if we're going to prevent the kind of ultra-nationalist, white Christian fundamentalist movement that we see, we're witnessing from gathering more steam, we have to go back and tackle our past in a frank manner that our education system has, uh, frankly, failed to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, I was trying to end on a fun note. I think we've just veered back into into the same old uh, territory. But uh, hey, um, uh, what about your new book? I know you're writing another book. Is that coming out soon? Yes. My co-author is coming tomorrow to work with me. That's an act. That's a book I've been working on for many years, well, four years, with David Beaver, uh, director of the Cognitive Science Program at University of Texas at Austin and a linguist. Uh, we published one piece in the New York Times called Beware of Snakes, Invaders, and Other Dangerous Words. Uh, and this book is about political rhetoric. It's called Hustle, the Politics of Language. And it's a large academic work addressing the question of how rhetoric leads to violence, um, what the causal mechanisms are that begin with calling people termites and snakes mm-hmm. and end with taking their, cho- their children away, separating their families, throwing them into prison, detaining, detaining, murdering, raping, or other forms of, uh, or, or deporting uh, them. So we're, what we're trying to do is, is, sit down and look at the psychology, look at the linguistics, and figure out the causal mechanisms involved uh, between rhetoric and action. How is it working with a co-worker, a co-author? Oh, well, uh, it's, I mean, we've both been giving the material in academic departments. This is quite technical work at times. Uh-huh. And uh, we've been giving the material uh, all over the world, really. Uh, and... Uh, and, you know, it would be great if the University of Texas at Austin were not so far away. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, an academic book takes many years. It takes a lot of hard, intense work. It's been, frankly, taking me away from writing editorials uh, in the newspapers uh, more than I would like. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, it's, it's, good. It's, it's good. I mean, I think it'll take us another year and a half to finish it. And then after that... We will use it as the basis for a lot of articles in the newspaper, media appearances, and a trade book. Mm. That's really cool. Yeah, um, I just think I I like working with other authors. Actually, I've I've had the chance to do it sometimes, and it's fun to be able to just pass things back and forth. And it's like a snowball; it gets a little bit bigger each time. And exactly. one person adds something, and you add something, and then they pass it back, and it's shaved down and it's compacted. And 
you know, it's 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 nice to see it take shape. Uh, to use another analogy, like clay or whatever, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah. it's it's interesting. It's, it's 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 this very it's just it's a daunting empirical question, and I I felt though I'm a I have a strong background as a linguist. The person I'm working with is the world's foremost person on some of the phenomena we're looking at, like presupposition. Mm. Um, like if 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 I if I um, if I say to you, um, what's your solution to the Jewish question? That that is anti-Semitic. But why is that anti-Semitic? Because it presupposes that there is a Jewish question. Yeah, I was going to so, say the Jewish question sounds sinister. <laughs> right, it traps, right. It traps you. It's yeah. an anti-Semitic trap because it traps you into thinking that there is a Jewish question. Right. So, and that trap is called presupposition. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, you, we see that kind of trap all the time in innocuous ways. Like in my gym, there's a sign that says, thank you for cleaning your machine after use. <laughs> so, so we see a presupposition all the time, these traps. Uh, and that's yeah. enough. It's telling us, it's, it's presupposing that we've cleaned our machine, and if we haven't, yeah. we feel embarrassed. And so what's presupposed is what we ought to think. And so language has this mechanism for for telling us something, but you can only get the message if you presuppose something else. And a lot of political speech involves that. It involves that move of getting your interlocutor to presuppose something. And really what you want is you want them to presuppose that. You don't really care about your explicit message. So at any rate, he's the world's expert on that. It's a daunting technical problem, empirical problem. Like, you know, people are people say, how can language be violent? How can language do anything? It's just talking. You know, there's an empirical question there. How does language enable people to do terrible things? And uh, and so I don't. I just don't think one mind working full time is enough to tackle that huge problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like when people say, "When did you stop beating your wife?" Or whatever. That's, you know? <laughs> that's a classic example of presupposition. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, great, great. Well, I will uh, definitely look forward to reading all that. And uh, yeah, keep keep doing what you're doing. I, I think you're sounding the alarm bells on things that need to be sounded. Um, I, I apologize if I if I said anything wrong about Israel or or, or the Jewish people in any way. No, no offense was intended, and yeah, <laughs> don't expect yeah. you to order me or whatever. <laughs> so. No, you, you, you didn't. It's a it's a complicated topic that requires yeah. uh, that, and you know people should be allowed to say. You know, I'm ignorant about a lot of things about Israel yeah. because I'm an American citizen and I don't, frankly, right. it's at the center of my my uh, my thought all the time. I'm a U.S. citizen, um, so uh, but unfortunately, the situation's being politicized so in America, so uh, in ways. I mean, not unfortunately. I mean, it is anyway because the United States has been supporting Israel militarily to the tune of over between three and four billion a year for a long yeah. time so it's already a political question so people right. um but there's two different issues whether obviously it's always a political question what our relation to any other country would be uh that's always a political question so it's always a political question what relations to israel or france or belgium should be um but what is less should be less of a political question is 
how this relates to anti-Semitism in America. <laughs> it should be off limits that you know Jewish that that Palestinians are being called anti-Semitic. Palestinian Americans are being my fellow American citizens are being called anti-Semitic because they're just uh, you know they're they're engaging in legitimate political critique. Uh, maybe they're wrong. Maybe they're right. But they're engaging in legitimate political discussions. Um, and this is what we, uh, I think, as Americans, we don't need to solve all the Middle East, the problems of the Middle East, but we can, we can make sure that people are allowed to discuss them. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's important to remember that there's uh, so many perspectives within the Jewish community, and no one group speaks for everyone. And no uh, group yeah. speaks for everyone, especially not. Yeah, I mean, yeah. There's always going to yep. be tensions between liber- and always have been between liberal progress between liberal Jews and you know very religious or you know very uh, very Zion- or uh, I mean there are liberal Zionists but there's always been tensions between uh, more fun more more religious uh, Jews and more liberal Jews uh, and more secular Jews of course. Uh, uh, there's always been tensions. I mean, you know, two Jews, three opinions. So yeah, uh, yeah, that's the phrase I was trying to think of. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, what What's happening that's extremely disturbing is um, one group of of Jewish people is trying to speak for all of us, and and that's problematic. And and people should not. And more than that, it just shouldn't be a part of American politics. <laughs> it's, it's not good for the. Oh Jews. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> we probably shouldn't be spending this much time even talking about it. <laughs> but uh but yeah, um reminds me of on the Sopranos uh when they had that episode uh, where they were talking about Christopher Columbus and Fur- and Furio who was from Italy like has like he's but I never liked Columbus and then all the American Italians are like, Oh and they're like, But why? It's like he's from the north and we hate the people from the north uh-huh. and he have all the money and they look down on the people from Sicily or whatever and it's like exactly. they don't even realize that they're over here these American Italians, like they have a totally different perspective. Like, so it's just like Christopher Columbus equals Italy and they're like within Italy it's like pooh, I spit on the ground <laughs> Christopher Columbus. <Yeah>. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, yeah, well, I've taken up a lot of your night, and thank you for, so much for being so generous with your time. And, uh, yeah, I hope to talk to you again soon. Uh, hopefully we'll have something more fun to talk about. <laughs> right. Yeah, let's hope. Uh, from your lips to God's ears. <laughs> exactly. All well, right. uh, have a good one. I'll talk to you soon. Have a wonderful holiday season. Thank you. Thank you.
Join the Rob Burgess Show mailing list. Go to tinyletter.com forward slash the Rob Burgess Show and type in your email address. Then respond to the automatic message. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review everywhere the podcast is available, including iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, RSS, and now Spotify. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. If you have something to say, record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to therobburgessshow at gmail.com. Include voice memo in the subject line of the email. Also, if you want to call or text the show for any reason, the number is 317-674-3547. Until next time.